Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right, come on. Live from the gleaming, streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen with a contemporary vengeance. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man right there, back checker Mark Boyer, co-host extraordinaire. Uh, thank you. We always have, last night I was trying to make an executive decision whether to watch the Showtime special, The Twelfth Victim, or to watch the second Shazam movie. <laughs> That's a toughie. And although I'd actually already seen the, uh, the second Shazam movie because I saw it in the theater, I decided to watch it again. Then, of all things, I hear from Jack MacArthur, who uh, uh, wrote the book, called Pro Bono, which, what does that have to do with the 12th victim? Well, uh, allow me to uh, tangentially, maybe not just gently, uh, it's about Carol Ann Fugge. Now, she was the 14-year-old chick that uh, was running around with that Starkweather guy, and they were, he was killing people. Uh, his grandfather actually did Pro Bono, which means for free. It's not like a relative of Sonny Bono. Illegal, it's a legal term. Yes, it's not? not like Sonny Bono. He didn't do anything for free. No. No. <laughs> we got this all figured out, ladies and gentlemen. We, we know what we're talking about. She was only 14 years old when his murders took place in 1958. She was convicted as his accomplice and sentenced to life in prison. Now, in 1976, she was paroled after serving 18 years. Why? How? Well. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You sound beautiful. So many movies and TV shows based on this case, Natural Born Killers, and some that were actually like based on the real story or fictionalized versions. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, really, just I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Speak, speak. To oh, it. yeah, most of them really just sort of inspired by the story, and then they just kind of ran off and did whatever they wanted with it. Um, you know, it, one. I mean, my favorite has been Badlands because of the fact that. Uh, Terrence Malick didn't even pretend that it was based on the original story. He just basically created his own thing, took took just the barest of inspiration from it, and he's always you know made it clear that no, this is not the real story. This is just you know I took elements from it. Whereas some of the others, they tried to use that as advertising. They're like, this is based on the true story. When no, not not even slightly inspired by. I always like that term, inspired by actual events. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Which usually is more accurate, actually, to say it's just merely inspired by and they just created their own thing. So Yeah, that sounds better to say inspired by by a bad, by yeah. a bad dream our producer had. <laughs> if, any, if any of this material relates, uh, relates to anything in real life, it is, mure, is purely coincidental. <laughs> yes, right. Now, how did this chick, uh, she was only 14 years old, how did she meet up with this wacko psycho killer? Well, actually, it was, uh, her um, her sister uh, dated him for a bit, and then that sister decided uh, to start dating Charlie's boss, but uh, didn't know, so I, she, she knew he was kind of nuts. He wasn't killing anybody yet, but he was pretty nuts, and so... To kind of let him down easy, she kind of introduced him to her sister, Carol. Oh, how nice uh, of her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, something actually that 
she didn't even think about it until years later, or Carol didn't think about it, until years later when they were on A Current Affair, many, you know, decades later after uh, everything else, and the sister was with her, and she broke down crying. She said, you know, uh, she said I had been passing him along to you because I wanted to date his boss, and I've always felt bad. I've always thought about that. And, you know, she literally had a nervous breakdown uh, when thinking about it. Well, right there on TV. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it was, you know, they didn't, it wasn't live, and they didn't have that because it was only officially interviewing Carol, but, but her sister had come with her uh, to the interview, and we were actually shooting that in our base, in the basement of, because my father was her attorney by that point, uh, and I was in the room with them when they did it, and that kind of happened off camera. Oh. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine you'd feel bad if you'd introduce your 14-year-old sister to a serial killer who took you on a killing spree. Yeah, to look back on that, yeah, especially. Now, when she was 13, she met this guy, I guess. He was a high school dropout, five years older than her. And uh, uh, he killed her stepfather and her mother. That's not a good Mm -hmm. way to begin a relationship. (laughs) Not, Not exactly, no. And, uh, uh, he had also, did he also stab the uh, younger sister in the neck or something? Correct. He threw, threw a knife into her neck. I uh, killed the two-year-old uh, half-sister. Um, and he had killed a gas station attendant the month before, but that hadn't been known. A lot of people, there were numerous people who went to the police and said they believed he did it. And they, you know, they had, there was more than enough evidence to say he had killed this guy, but the police just completely ignored it. Um, didn't do anything about it and stuff. And then, you know, when it came to this, uh, they still didn't pay much attention until later when it uh, went to the rich area of town. And once the rich people were dying, yeah, then, then they, they got really serious. Up. Yeah, that figures. Now, I understand yeah. that for six days after he murdered her parents and her sister, uh, they lived in the house, turned away all visitors, which kind of made some people suspicious. Right, exactly. Now, Carol actually left a note on the door that said, everyone is sick with the flu, or go away, everyone is sick with the flu. And then at the bottom, she wrote, Miss Fugate, I'm sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Miss Bartlett, and she underlined it three times. She underlined Miss Bartlett three times. Uh, and the reason she had done that was because she went by Fugate. Her mother went by Mrs. Bartlett, which back in those days, that was, you know, more important. The only Miss Bartlett in the house was the two-year-old, uh, half sister, uh, and other people, uh, members of the family of her family, like her grandmother, um, and Charlie's family as well, his brother, his sister, they all got it. And they all told the police that, Hey, look, this you know, this note is a clue, blah, blah, blah. And they just, again, completely ignored it and all that. Okay. Carol herself, uh, was tied to a chair, which was evidenced by the fact that there were rope burns on her when they found, you know, when she eventually was in custody. Uh, the the chair with the ropes were later found in the house and all that. Um, but yeah, they, he kept her there for, for like six days, telling her that her family, he explained that her family was done because he said his friends had them kidnapped, and if she tried to escape, he would have them all killed. Meanwhile, they were already dead and like stuck in the back uh, somewhere. Right, well, in a chicken, in a chicken coop and down the, um, oh, it was really called uh, outhouse. Yeah. How, how lovely. This guy must have been, as we say in the medical terminology, batshit crazy. Yeah, he was definitely <laughs> Meshuggah. Yeah, Meshuggah. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah, for sure, yeah. So when people started getting suspicious, they took off. They fled across Nebraska into Wyoming, 
on a murder spree, he kills like six more people. Right. What, what's this? Exactly. Uh, what's his problem? Well, you know, there's that's one of those things where you, you could really go into the whole psychology of it and study it. I mean, it, there are people who have done entire studies on him. Um, obviously, psychopathic. I mean, in some part, some of them is so baffling. The very first one that Carol actually saw him kill was a friend of his. They went to a farmer uh, that he knew and Charlie got the car stuck. This is January when you have a lot of snow and mud and all that. The car got stuck. They go to the farmer for help and the farmer's heading to some horses to, you know, basically get the equipment to help, you know, pull them out. And Charlie just pulls his gun up and shoots him in the back. Um, next, they... Well, and then they just kind of started wandering, like at nighttime. I mean, actually, they there was a few things that they did between, but essentially, they were walking along in the middle of the night. These two teenagers come along. Uh, Charlie waves them down. You know, gets in the car. They and he has them go into a small town called Bennett, where he then gets out to make a phone call at the payphone. I've always wondered what would have happened if that payphone had been working because it wasn't. He just went up, tried it, didn't work. Then he goes back in the car, pulls the gun out, and says, now you're going to take us to this storm cellar. And he took them to the storm cellar, murdered the guy, raped the girl, then murdered her, uh, all while Carol was in the car. And some people have been like, well, why didn't Carol run at that point and all that? This is Nebraska in the middle of January, middle of the night. You know, where is she going to go? Where, where is she going to run to? It was no Right. Yeah. She didn't have exactly. any opportunity during this time period. To get away not really. from police? Uh, you, well, certainly there's no nowhere to get police because this is, you know, like Nebraska is very much like there are towns in the middle of island, you know, or they're like islands in the middle of the ocean. You know, you might as well be in the middle of the ocean when you're out in these uh, country areas. Um, now, that is sort of the question. That's what a lot of the prosecution said is they, they could have escaped. My grandfather's uh, contention was that, no, she never had, uh, you know, opportunity. My looking at it is that uh, technically, she she did, but that's where that's what makes this case particularly fascinating. Is where is what is the definition of guilt, and especially how do we attribute that to, to children? Because if you look at certain points, it's like okay, technically she could have tried to escape there, but would she would have would she have have made it? Uh, and when you look, uh, and when you look at. Um, uh, when they, they, they went, eventually went back to Lincoln and went to this super wealthy, uh, family's house, they, when they went into there, there's a, the, the woman, you know, of the house and there's, uh, her maid, she, uh, or, uh, or they, 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 instead of like running and trying to call the police, they actually, uh, made sandwiches for them and all sort of thing. And at one point, uh, it's the Ward family, Mrs. Ward goes up to the second floor and she's away from them for as much as around 40 minutes or so. There's a working telephone up there. There are windows. There are plenty of chances to escape, but she doesn't even try. And Charlie's downstairs. You know, you look at that and you can go, well, she didn't try to escape either. You know, right. and nobody would ever contend and say that she was, help, you know, assisting Charlie. Um, and especially because he then went up and killed her. Um, and she's a grown adult. And so that really shows just how much fear, you know, has control of people. You, you don't need a gun pointed at a person to, you know, to cause them fear. Right. You really show that, you know, so, yeah. So that's really more of the case is, is while Carol technically had opportunities, she could have 
tried to run, where she could have grabbed a gun and tried, like, she was actually holding a gun in her hand, uh, and people said, why didn't she shoot him? Well, if she had, she would have been killed because there, it was unloaded and jammed. Uh, that was later found out about it. So, uh, you know, that, and that's the thing. Throughout the whole case, there were just no uh, instances where she felt safe about running until she was in Wyoming. And Charlie was about to kill his 12th victim. The, 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 he was literally wrestling with a guy in the middle of the street uh, and you know, ready to kill him. And Carol saw a police car that did not see Charlie. This guy was behind a milk truck or an ice cream or a milk truck or something like that. And he had no idea what was going on, but Carol could see him. And so she jumped out of the car, ran to the police officer, screamed hysterically to the point where he couldn't even understand her until she said the word Starkweather. And then he bravely picked up the radio and called for somebody else to chase after him, was later uh, cited as a hero for having captured Carol Seagate. Uh, and then, yeah, the rest became charging hers as a complex, even though, you know, when they said, well, why didn't she escape? Well, she did. And, you know, why she was helping him. Well, she actually turned him in. So, you know, anyway. How old was she during at the trial? Uh, with 15, she, she was 14 during the murder spree, but by the time the trial happened later that year, she had had her birthday. And so they tried her as an adult? Yes, exactly. And that was the first thing my grandfather tried to do was have it moved to juvenile court, but they refused. So for 18 years, your grandfather represented this young girl? Exactly. She was found guilty. And, you know, while a lot of lawyers would just sort of leave their clients at that time, he stuck with her. And, I mean, he wasn't paid for it or anything. He just decided to do a pro He even... Uh, refused the payment because he had been uh, appointed as her attorney uh, since she was a child. They, you know, she couldn't afford one. Um, but she was. But my grandfather was so disgusted by how the state treated because they literally, you know, they had just decided she was guilty and there was no real investigation. Um, and so he was so disgusted by how they had treated her and how they treated him, frankly. Uh, so he just refused the payment. Um, so he never got paid, and then throughout the 18 years, he just did it because he felt so strongly about her innocence until he got her released on parole. He was never able to get another trial, but he was able to at least get her out on parole. Yeah, she was sentenced to what, life imprisonment, and then it was mm -hmm. changed to 50 years. Yes, what a bargain. Right. It was, yeah, it was reduced because uh, because they needed that in order for her to be eligible for Because when you, at least at the time, uh, and it's probably still this way, you can't get parole when it's life because it's supposed to be like a certain amount of time has to, uh, or a certain percentage of your sentence has to pass. And with life, you don't know how long that is. But with a certain set of years, then it's like you can go, okay, you've served this many years, you're up for parole now. Oh, I see. I get it now. Yeah. That was awfully brave and uh, moral of your grandfather to do this. Thank you. Well, well I've, always, I've always sort of felt that myself, and my, grand, my father has always said that, you know, if, we, if I wanted to understand, you know, more about my grandfather, watch uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, because the performance in that, not only is the, uh, it, you know, did he do a very similar kind of thing, but, like, the personality and everything about it is very, very, very much like my grandfather. And I learned while I was researching for the book, there's a possibility that Harper Lee 
uh, might have gotten some inspiration because this story was in the newspapers uh, at the time that she was, you know, just before she wrote uh, To Fellow Mockingbird. And uh, what was it? Oh, and what the reason why I started going, oh, this might, th- there might have been some inspiration was because she was really good friends with, um, oh, the other author who, who wrote In Cold Blood. Truman yes. Capote. Truman Capote, yes. yeah. Truman Capote, yeah. And supposedly he was obsessed with this case. He was super, that was where, when I studied about him, I learned that he was obsessed with the Starkweather case and was reading it in the newspaper all the time. And apparently she was seeing him a lot during that time. Anyway, so it kind of comes full circle. I'm like, my guy, my, and when I actually read To Kill Mockingbird, there are certain descriptions, they're not necessarily in the movie, but in in the book, there are certain descriptions that are not only accurate to my grandfather, but very, very specific, that exact thing actually happened with my grandfather. Now, that could be coincidence. But I doubt but, it. But, yeah, but I wonder. You know, it's, it's always maybe I wrote to Harper Lee, but she was famously, you know, uh, uh, what do um, Ignored you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. She, Did you like anyway. the sequel? Well, the sequel wasn't really oh, a yeah. sequel. It was more of a, a rough draft <laughs> first. Well, yeah, she, you know, she wrote a follow-up but some, for right. a character some, years later. I was pissed they killed off the young boy. She killed him off. Uh, oh, did she? Yeah, they, uh, um, the the guest, the kind of loose friend, is it Tom Hawkins? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, she just, you know, just eschew, eschewed him from the rest of the story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I heard it wasn't very good. No. But I, uh, but uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is just one of my favorites. Uh, Gregory yeah. Peck, you know, I have the Gregory Peck was great in that movie. box set. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. so. Yeah. That's oh yeah, that was a, quite a nice um, feather in the cap of your family to have that. And the book, of course, <laughs> which I, I have the book pro bono written by you. I should get it autographed. Yeah. Very good book, fascinating. Thank you. And you're going on a whirlwind tour now, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the show, the Showtime uh, documentary has been good for you. You fell into a small spot there. Did they? Uh, <laughs> did they consult yeah. you at all on this? Oh, uh, for the documentary? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They uh, contacted me and you know told me they were interested in the subject, and I said, you know, because uh, there have been numerous documentaries. So at first, I was sort of you know, suspicious or whatever, but okay, you know, I always talk to whoever wants to know about it or whatever. Um, but as I got to talking to them, I got the idea more and more that they actually really cared about the story. Uh, that it wasn't just, because typically people do the story, it's like, oh, here's the new Bonnie and Clyde, and here's, you know, and they, they want to glorify the murders and all that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, and they, they never want to hear, like, the, I mean, like when Discovery did the story, I literally tried to hand them the entire court case files, every, all the evidence, all the um, transcripts of the trials, everything, and they just ignored it. They didn't want to have, you know, they're investigating, <laughs> they call themselves the investigative, uh, what do you call it? Investigation discovery, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yet here, not only did they not do the investigation, I literally was trying to hand it to them, and they refused it. Uh, they, cause they just had their own, their own, their own story they wanted to do. They just had their own right. idea of how they, how they wanted to do it. They wanted to make up their own it, true story. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, and one after another, they did, you know, just these different documentaries, History Channel, all that, never really cared about the facts. 
But here was this group of people. Uh, Nicola Marsh was the director, and I really started going, oh, man, these guys actually want to know the truth. They want to know the facts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and as they, start, as they got to doing it, and particularly asking the questions, I realized a lot of what they were going after was how this story affected our culture. And sure enough, you watch the documentary, and it really goes into what's important about this story, which is the effects that this had. Because, of course, you know, all these different movies and songs and all sort of thing were inspired by it. But it's, it really, ref, it's like, why were they inspired by it? And I think it's because it reflects a, a part of our society, you know, the, the supposed safety of the 50s and the, you know, the, the, the way we glorify the, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and just like so many different aspects. Uh, and this really, and, you know, Starkweather really shattered that notion of, of safety of the 50s and um, the teenagers and all that sort of Then the way that people glorify uh, killers, teenage killers, all that. And so she really was doing a study about that more than, than uh, the actual. I mean, the case itself, yes, and she cared about Carol and what happened with that, but it was, it was more of an exploration into how it affected our culture, and I was very, very impressed. Well, that's a, that's a nice breath of fresh air. In true crime world, actually, have a bit true. <laughs> yeah. We even kind of, you know, go into true crime itself, and, like, you know, again, are that people really affected by this and stuff. I so. imagine she was really affected by all this. I can't imagine anything more traumatizing than what she went through, except maybe the Holocaust survivor or something. Right. Exactly. I mean, at 14 years old, you, you know, and one of the things that really got to me was when I was thinking at the end, because I really was trying to always be fair and go, could she have escaped? Could she have? And, and in particular, there's one part that was always a big question mark for a lot of people because there were pictures from a newspaper that was there clipped out of a newspaper in her pocket when she went into custody and of her parents, which implies that she had seen those newspapers, which implies she had known, you know, when they were uh, killed and blah, blah, blah. Um, but then, then when I really was putting all those, those cause I really was thinking about it, it really was making me, you know, question myself and, you know, have, didn't, was I wrong about this all along? But then when I went to the timeline and realized when she would have gotten that clipping versus when she, ran to the police and when she escaped um, I realized that this would have been, basically she would have seen the newspaper then gotten into a car and the very next opportunity she had to jump out was when she ran to the police and it, it occurred to me just how horrifying that would be to have done all these things to keep him alive you know he's been saying do what I say or I'm going to have your parents killed and she just goes through one thing after another seeing all these people killed and just really just horrible horrible things her ex-boyfriend by the way he, he was her ex-boyfriend and she, it's always referred to as her boyfriend girlfriend but she had broken up with him a few days earlier which is what triggered the, the murder spree um, but her ex-boyfriend murdered uh, all these people and now she sees in the newspaper that the people she's been uh, go, she's been um, trying to save going around with yeah trying to save exactly the, the people she was trying to save the whole time they were dead the entire time and she done, did all this like I, I shouldn't say all this because she's not like she did a lot but she just basically didn't try to escape uh, went along with them this whole time trying to save all parents, along, yeah. yeah trying to save them and they were dead all along I mean imagine just how horribly traumatizing that is and that's just the beginning of the journey, because then 
when she gets convicted of, uh, of accessory to murder, she's put into, uh, not only put into prison, but because she wasn't old enough to be with the general population, she was put into uh, solitary confinement. Oh, my God. For the, for the first, like, two or three years that she was in prison. This is considered torture to put somebody like that, in, or put, to put an adult into solitary confinement for a month. She was there for years. Uh, as oh, a that, child. That poor kid. God. <laughs> yeah. And to this day, people are still like, oh, she's, you know, she's a horrible murderess. And it's like, you know. Uh, what is she uh, saying? She's still alive? Yes. Uh, and she's, uh, she remarried, or she not remarried. She married, like, many, she didn't want to marry for a very long time because she didn't want to put this on someone. Uh, but she married somebody and then went through a tragic part with that because then, they were in a terrible car accident in which he was killed, and the, the news initially reported that she had been killed, too. And what goes over all the airwaves across the U.S.? The girl from Natural Born Killers has died in a car accident, and they keep showing all these clips oh, of no. the girl in that movie killing people. That's horrible. So, yeah. I bet she so. was a wreck, psychologically. <laughs> And what if she got yeah. got therapy or anything? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she, yeah, she has become very religious. Uh, you know, she, I mean, now she's quite old uh, and just kind of living privately. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but that's, I haven't seen her for years myself. Uh, so you have talked to her? Uh, yeah, but decades ago, I mean, I actually, you know, I actually did not get it. I sent a message to her. Actually, we've kind of like sent a couple messages since the book was released, but it's been like, because I know some people who know her, my, my, my own family is no longer in touch, but I know her, uh, oh, is it her pleasant attorney, actually the granddaughter of two of the victims, the wealthy couple I was talking about, yeah. uh, her, her name is Liza Ward. She started, her family has always thought Carol was involved and had helped kill, but especially as she had her own children that were growing up, she started having real questions, and she she went on her own journey to kind of investigate this and learn about it, uh, and so she got to know a lot of us, and she actually went out and met Carol, and now knows her herself, so it's some of the time, they, and when I say about messages to and from Carol, it's not been like a specific one, but rather... You know, I, I would say, give her my best or whatever, and then she would sort of say to back to the person or whatever, and that person then talk to me. Um, so it's not been, like, real conversations or whatever, but it's interesting that some of you know some of these people who have gotten to know her, like I say, including Liza, the granddaughter. Did she change her name or just stay the same? She actually kept it the same, which you would think she'd want to change it, but she's just like, no, I have nothing to be ashamed of. I don't feel I should have to change it. I'm not going to do that to satisfy other people. Good for her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine going through something like that. Thank God I can't imagine it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that would, the trauma of that must be so intense. I mean, you think right. she'd, she'd be in therapy for the, every day for the rest of her life. <laughs> Poor thing. Well, you'd think to, uh, oh, I mean, when you think of the, the era as well, it was, it was an era when everybody believed the police were correct in everything. If we said something, oh yeah, it happened. Uh, and so she, of course, grow, had to grow up in this environment where everybody's like, 
oh, you little whore, the police are right about you, you know, whatever anybody says they say about you is, is correct. And, and then for movies and documentaries to be made saying, oh, she did all these terrible things when, you know, uh, what you really went through was a nightmare. Wow. I sure yeah. hope if there's life after death, I hope she has a good time because she didn't have one when she was alive. <laughs> right. She deserves a lot better. She deserves a lot uh, and better. <laughs> she's gone on to be a nurse and uh, took care of children. And um, you know, since she didn't have her own children, she's really been like she worked with daycares and uh, has been a nanny and, you know, um, basically tried to create a lot of positivity. Uh, elsewhere. Well, that's good too. It's amazing that she even survived enough to do that. You know, I think some other people would have been just so messed up. They just, you know, do nothing or, or kill themselves, even commit suicide. Right. Well, there was one time when she made an attempt when, when her last appeal was rejected, actually by the U S Supreme court, they almost heard it. It was like a vote of four to five, uh, to, not listen to it, um, but she, my, my father, who was her attorney by that point, because when I was originally my grandfather, my father then went to Lafayette, he was a teenage, he's Carol's age, and as he grew up, during, you know, the case went on for so long, he actually went to law school and then graduated and got involved in this and became the main attorney, oh. um, and he, he actually became the youngest uh, lawyer in history to write a brief for the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. Your family's kind of famous. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've had an interesting history, kind of unusual. Yeah. So, uh, that's an amazing story. You always come up with these amazing stories from your other books as well. Uh, I always got a kick out of, uh, changing the subject slightly here, uh, The Great Heist, where, mm -hmm. where all this money is stolen and Al Capone makes them give it back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Largest bank heist in history. $2.7 million, which is over $40 million in today's money. Uh, and we committed because nobody had paid them for the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre. So, <laughs> so Al Capone, <laughs> give the money back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, we don't do bank robberies. And it was because Al Capone's long lost brother was a prohibition officer in Nebraska, uh, and he had gone back to Al, you know, years earlier, and they had agreed to stay out of each other's territory. He's like, okay, because he was one of the best prohibition officers, one of the most successful prohibition officers in the entire country, uh, and he was just like, well, I won't go to Chicago, you don't come to Nebraska, and Al said, sure, and they said it right in front of a newspaper reporter, actually, uh, and so when Al found out these guys had robbed a bank in Nebraska, of all things, that's two, two strikes against them. One, he did not want bank robbery. He always saw himself as a legitimate businessman. Uh, it was just his business was in, you know, things that were illegal, but he was like, we don't rob banks, and we definitely don't do anything in Nebraska. So, Yeah, two gun hearts was his brother's Moniker. Mm -hmm. Love that <laughs> yep. book, too. I, I got all your books. I'm a big fan. <laughs> cool. Great. Cool, cool. Yeah, I always, <laughs> enjoy, always enjoy your work. You find you find these fascinating cases that other people... I, don't, I mean, how many people even knew that, that Al Capone had a brother who was a, a, a law enforcement uh, character? <laughs> yeah. Stop playing with this. Well, yeah. I mean, you know my... Um, 
uh, the way that I even learned about it was because of this uh, pro bono. Uh, it was during the case that, that pro bono is about my grand, when my grandfather and father were working together uh, on Carol's case. At one point, my grandfather was uh, they were in the cafeteria at the at the court, uh, and my grandfather just casually mentioned to him, "Oh, you know that." Al Capone, or the largest bank robbery in history happened here in Nebraska, and Al Capone's long-lost brother helped get the money back for it. And my dad, in his infinite wisdom, went, oh, is that right? And went back to what he was eating <laughs> and never asked anything further. And so when he repeated that to me, I had a bit of a different reaction going, wait, what? Tell me more. And by that point, my grandfather had passed away, and so we weren't able, and I, you know, you couldn't ask him anymore, so we had to go research it ourselves. <laughs> and that's a fascinating story it's a great book by the way ladies and gentlemen Too Good Heart uh, pick that one up too buy all of his books they're all good <laughs> thank you yeah you can, you can quote me on that for blurbs for your books <laughs> Edgar Award winner and New York Times bestselling author Burl Bear says buy all of his books they're all good <laughs> they're all good they're well all thank good. you yeah you're more than welcome I really do enjoy your work oh, this was especially oh, especially fascinating because it's your own family uh, so you yeah. got to have the inside track on this one. And it's such a fascinating story. It's so horrific. This Starkweather guy was a real pain. I mean, I wouldn't date him. Uh, he's killing people. <laughs> did, did anyone ever do any analysis of him on what the hell was going on with him? I mean, he's even shooting his friends in the back. Yeah, well, you know, there was a psychological study done by this pair, but unfortunately the, the pair had just so little credibility. What were their names? Um, it's in the book, uh, and unfortunately I can't think of their names, but, um, the, the, the thing was they, they went from such a, an angle of, they, they basically treated it like he was the victim and Carol was the manipulator. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so just, you know, you, you see that and immediately go, there's just no credibility here, you know? So, but you could see some other things. Uh, in there, and you know, the um, oh, sorry. No, I, I was just thinking about this. Was, I must have been thinking very loudly. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, there are um, there was, oh, there were some things that were brought up in that article. It was oh, it was published in a national magazine. I think was it USA Today, something like that. Anyway, they actually show it in the documentary in the uh, twelve victim documentary. Um, and they did bring up certain issues that, you know, are true. It is a pity that they kind of destroyed their credibility in other ways because there were certain things they brought up that were uh, good points. Like, for instance, I mean, basically, he was this awkward-looking kid who was mentally disabled. Uh, not only was he just not very smart naturally, but he also had a head injury. Uh, uh, he, yeah, he was bull-legged, chicken-toed. Um, like several different things, and children mocked him mercilessly. And this is, again, the 50s, where it was just like, oh, just toughen up, kid. Uh, raised in a poor family, uh, family, and just all kinds of issues and stuff. So he was like a, you know, a, a standard case of somebody who's just, you know, well, been constantly screwed up. It was like Dr. Yeah. Robert Hare said, there's two ways to be a psychopath. One, you could be born this way, or you can be made a psychopath by a combination of abuse, emotionally, physically, sexually, coupled yeah. with a head injury. This guy seemed right. to hit the jackpot. 
Yeah, exactly. The only one of those I don't know if it had was sexual. Well, sort of. I mean, the, I don't get the idea he was sexually abused, but he was impotent. And so he just had, like you said, he had the jackpot of everything. Um, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Especially, um, especially at that time period. Oh, yeah. So what happened? Nice people who were different. What happened that switched him from non-killer to killer? What was the, what was the trigger? Well, you know... Because the first killing happened when, in December, like the, the month before, and that's never been fully understood because it, it, it was a gas station attendant, and he actually, sometimes he would get kicked out of his apartment. He had been already kicked out of his home by his parents, and he was living in an apartment that he sometimes got behind on rent, and so sometimes he'd be kicked out. And so he'd sleep in front of the gas station, uh, and then one night, all of a sudden, he just killed the gas station attendant. Uh, that's never been fully known, but we do know when he killed the, uh, Carol's family, she had broken up with him a couple days before. He had become, you know, sometimes when you date somebody, you become friends with their parents. Right. He had become friends with her father, and he was supposed to go over there, and they were going to go hunting together, but they went over there, and he was like, hey, Carol broke up with you, you know, we're done. So it's like, not only did he lose his girlfriend, but he lost his friends. He had just been kicked out of his home, out of his apartment again, uh, and he had been fired from his job. So again, it was like everything, it was the perfect storm. Everything happened at one time. bad things all at once. All at once. Mm-hmm. All at one time. And so he went over there, had his gun with him, uh, and when, when her father uh, said, you know, no, go away, that's when he snapped and he killed them and killed the child and... You know, did I mean it's, it's actually kind of interesting, surprising that he didn't just kill Carol when she came in. Right. But I think that she was his only lifeline to life in in many ways, and so he wanted to pretend that hey, we're we're, we're bank robbers on the run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. The only Wait. thing that could have been worse in his life is he'd gone into radio. <laughs> 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 oh, that, oh that poor sucker! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but was it was it one thing? It would be another. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> oh man, yeah. So it was really like, yeah. All of these uh, serial killers all seem to be a little bit on the crazy side. Yeah, it's sad stories, you know. I mean, as, as much as you know, it's, it's mostly sad that they you know kill people. So I don't want to. Excuse that, but then you, you know the whole thing winds up being, you know, just yeah. bad and terrible. We got a little little technical problem here. Please stand by. Okay. Or is attempting to fix it. Almost. There you go. There you go. There you go. Okay, we're back okay, in business. We're back. <laughs> we're back. I'll fix that. The anyway, if I. <laughs> By the way, if I talk over you guys, uh, there's a little bit of a static that I'm hearing, like, but it's an echo. So I apologize if you're talking and all of a sudden I just talk over you. That's okay. It's because I didn't hear you or whatever. That's all right. So now you, so you're on to where are you going on tour with this book? You've got to go around and uh, just kind of put yourself in the middle of a street somewhere and start yelling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I do that just normally. Yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> I think I've seen you there on uh, Wilshire and Western. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's me. You got it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just basically going to uh, whoever will have me, podcasts, uh, true crime things, uh, radio shows, uh, rotaries, um, blimps where I can shout out the window, you know. 
The other thing you could do is go on tour with uh, the documentary and have show the documentary and then talk afterwards. That would be cool, too. That's not a bad idea. You know, I mean, it is one of those things where I always try to be sensitive to somebody else's work and go, okay, is it? But, you know, I should probably ask. I mean, I'm, I'm now friends with the director who has uh, been good enough to, to stay in touch. And uh, just because, yeah, we both kind of fascinated by, you know, this story and others others like it. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to always promote her, you know, uh, her documentary as well and say, hey, it, but it's good, it's good visuals for me, but also it's the first time a documentary has been done on this subject that I'm actually like, yes, everyone, please watch this. Okay, well, see, um, I, I chose to watch the second Shazam movie last night instead. <laughs> I had my choice. <laughs> but I'll make up for it, I promise. <laughs> that's on you, my friend. Yeah, it's on me. I'll watch the twelfth victim. It's absolutely possible. Do you have any other? Have you got another book coming? You got something else you're working on? Uh, well, you know, I did more recently release, and I think I talked to you about this one. I uh, release a book about the Vietnam War called uh, "Dirty Old War," and that's like individual stories of of the war. That one came out more recently. Uh, the the most recent one I released was actually a, a uh, an attachment to the Pro Bono book called uh, Pro Bono The Fugate Files, which is not actually a written book so much as it's just the pictures of the images. So if you become interested in the story, you can you know get that book and like see the actual uh, paper from the, like the rejection letter from the Supreme Court uh, or the U.S. Supreme Court and the. Um, the different letters from different people, Carol's writings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the reason why I did that was that, um, my dad kept all this information, all this stuff uh, in his home. And every time I'd go to visit, I'd stay there for like a few weeks. And like those files were in his garage sitting there. They were literally, you know, how when you park your car, there's usually like something that's like, okay, here's where my bumper goes. Yeah. These, these files was that, there was the bumper stuff. You know, that's where <laughs> the he, bumper stopper, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, kind of stopped one night, looked at that, and went, "Oh my God, this is this is like historical treasure. It's just sort of like sitting in our in our garage." And of course, I used that for research on the book. But then I'm like, I should actually, you know, I, that was, I there were some death threats, you know, letters that my well, that's my all great stuff. You should take yeah. uh, my advice. Take all that secondary stuff, all the, the the death threats and the blah blah blah, all that stuff, the addendum. Put it all together with your original book. And then have it republished by somebody, like, say, Wild Blue, for example, uh, oh. in a new edition with a snazzy cover. Oh, you know, that might not be a bad idea. I think you do that's well your, with that. Uh, is that your imprint? Well, no, it's, well, that's where my books are currently published, yeah. Yeah, it's Steve Jackson. Okay. Yeah, they're very good. I very great pleasure working with them. And they do great covers. Right. <laughs> I got a great covers of both my two new books. So I'm really happy working with Wild Blue. Okay. I should yeah. talk to them. Yeah, I should, uh, and do you get the next... Okay. Yeah. And yeah, you could use me as a reference. I'll vouch for you. Um, All right. I, I do that with much trepidation, though. <laughs> Using me as a reference? Yes. Well, they know I'm crazy. <laughs> they know I'm crazy, but my books sell. So they like me. <laughs> well, we put up with Burl because people buy his books. So. <laughs> well, I might need to talk to him about the next thing I'm doing, which is uh, about the uh, basically our generation. I call it the entertainment generation. I've always hated the name Generation X because it like was sort of a dismissive term, but what really defines our generation? It's because we grew up with more of the forms of entertainment than any group before. I mean, every group, every generation likes entertainment, but our generation was more defined by by entertainment 
than any other generation in, in our nation's history. Yeah, so even more than those baby boomers. See, I'm a baby boomer, so I... Oh, are you? I had, uh, you know, the my entertainment was watching the test pattern until 2 in the afternoon. I'm <laughs> <laughs> 10 years later. Is that still a uh, baby boomer? What? 57? Well, I thought... Uh, baby I'm boomers is 40s, okay. uh, 40, uh, well, from when the war ended. When the war ended mm-hmm. up till whenever the next generation is. Generations are actually seven years, but they uh, in real life. I thought they life. were 20-something, 20-something years. Uh, seven years. Well, you see, it depends on whether you're uh, Walt Disney or not. Every seven years, they re-release their videos <laughs> their movies. <laughs> see, that, that's the thing, though, is it, that's the conversation always. Everybody's always like, oh, a generation is, and they stop. And there's never been a like a real def- definition, you know, definitive discussion on on this it's it's always well it's around this around so in my the way i kind of redefine all, you know all the generations i keep the names up until uh the entertainment generation but uh, i i put it at 20 years uh 20 uh, year time periods uh so like the definition um, i'm looking at what does it say 20 years 20 to 30 years <laughs> which again even they still don't have a definite you know it's right, 20, I, approximately uh, and for uh, re-release purposes, it's seven for Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. that's true. That's how they that's how they define generations is seven years, because okay. if you're born today in seven years, you're ready to watch the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's how they true. do it. But uh, yeah, it is kind of a loose a loose term. You have the baby boomers, which is called baby boomers, is that the war ended, the soldiers came home, they stooped like crazy and started having kids. You yep. Know? That's exactly. Baby boomers. Well, I like the yeah. crazy part. Oh, so he like the stupid part. Yeah. yeah. That's his favorite. Oh, <laughs> right. oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. That's a binary comment. I can't do that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so sorry to hear that. Times are tough all over. So, uh, uh, yeah, you. what do you do when you're not writing books? You must do something for a living unless you're married to a rich woman. <laughs> well, I... Transcribe and funny enough, I'm actually kind of looking for something that, that because transcription is kind of it, it just hasn't grown and it's in fact faded a little bit. So you know, I'm I'm kind of actually trying to figure that out because of the fact that yeah, just like you say, writing books just doesn't pay the rent. So yeah, people think all we uh, writers are rich, you know. They're <laughs> a handful, but I've been rich and I've been famous, but never both at the same time, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> Now I'm famous but not rich. I used to be rich and not famous. But that's your uh, business. I, I always think of you as infamous. As infamous. Mm-hmm. Mark Boyer thinks of me as imaginary. <laughs> well, I've never, I have never seen Burl in the same place twice. That's right. Ooh. And you know, you never see me Ooh. and Helen Reddy in the same room together. We must be the same person. <laughs> well, that's a silly thing. I always love that logic. Yeah, did you ever see Linda Lovelace and Helen Reddy together? I bet they're the same person. <laughs> it's, it's what I, the conclusion I would go to. Yeah, that's, yeah. And there's also the difference, a lot of people don't know the difference between causation and correlation. They confuse no, those two. Just because they happen to happen at the same time and the same doesn't mean they're connected. Oh. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's the strange days we live in, Master Jack. Well, what else? <laughs> what, what, what have you read any good books lately? I, I've been reading any good books. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm always reading. 
the research for you know for whatever it is that I'm uh, writing, you girl probably would not be too happy with the one I, I just read. It was about uh, the baby boom. It was a very critical book about the baby boom generation. <laughs> well, that's okay. I'm but, one of them. I'm used to criticism. <laughs> I'm in the media. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, you, is you may have found out once you become an author or a rock and roll disc jockey or any combination, uh, you lose by law. Uh, lots of protection, uh, privacy yeah, protection. Yeah. People can say mm -hmm. things about you that are absolutely false and you can't do a damn thing about it unless you can prove malice. Uh, you don't have right. the same degree of privacy protection as people who aren't, dare I say it, celebrities. And you and I, right. uh, and Mark C.G. Boyer, as a matter of fact, are now ah! celebrities. <laughs> That's true. And that is, it's... Something that is so, I, I know exactly what you mean because it's so absurd. And I, I mean, I've worked in the film industry and stuff, so I've had friends who are celebrities and stuff. And they, it is just, it's kind of like, uh, um, people will just say, it, and it's almost, um, it's, it's particularly confusing to me that there aren't any laws or rules that give some form of protection, at least to keep, uh, you know, at least keep the truth. I mean, uh, you'd think liable laws would be a little more protective, but because, like you say, because they're celebrities, like, well, you can do essentially fan fiction of that person's life. And it's like, yeah. what? When, when you die, it's even worse. Once you are a dead celebrity, people can say anything they want. Right. Yeah, like this it, person did this, this person. Well, that's what I grew up with. That's basically, Carol Fugate has been, even though she didn't ask me, even though she didn't go into, you know, it wasn't the, the, the um, career she went into. Just because, by the sheer nature that she was associated with this story, people have just made up whatever they want, and that's sort of their excuse. Well, she's a celebrity. I can say whatever I want about her. Yeah. And it's like, dude, this person went through something horrific, but, you know, and that's the reason why the story has, has constantly spread around of, of the new Bonnie and Clyde, and she was, you know, worse than, than Charlie. And uh, it's like, that's something I, I, I guess I want everybody to remember, in particular with the stories, that these people are human beings. That there is a human being at the middle of all this, and there's a responsibility we have for understanding the truth. You want to you want to do something different? Do what Terry Malick did with Badlands and create a completely new story. You can say I was inspired by it to create something, but I was merely inspired by something to create something new. This is not the same thing, and it always bugged me with Natural Born Killers because I was promoted on the story behind Fugate and Starkweather. You know. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Not even, I mean, there's literally nothing. Like Badlands at least has a few moments that are like, oh, I can see how that is associated with this. And, you know, actually, Carol was, Carol got a preview, uh, a preview of that. Terrence Malick actually brought the movie to York. She was still in prison, but they allowed her to get, to go out to go and watch the movie. And she sat next to Martin Sheen. And at one point in the movie, she always just, just smacked him with her purse. <laughs> and then he went back to watching the movie and didn't you know say so after he was they were walking uh walking out of the theater and he asked her um you know why did you hit me at that moment and she says because at that particular moment in the movie you were exactly like Charlie and it's it's the moment when he he kind of goes away from her and he starts punching the sky oh. uh and she's like that was exactly like Charlie so she all up and hit uh. it with her purse kind of like Ruth Buzzy. <laughs> 
But she, she is a violent chick. Interesting. But stupid. Oh, God, what a weird... Uh, say, uh, Artie... What? The, the... Well, Ruth was on one end of the park bench. Oh, uh, yeah, Artie Johnson. Artie, and he would just kind of move closer. Closer and closer and closer. Yeah. Put his head on her knee and she'd whack him with the purse. Yes. <laughs> Story of my life. I got more purse, purse welts <laughs> than I deserve. Well, you know, you, you know, you look shady. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I am shady. Well, congratulations on uh, all the new publicity for your book. And I'm glad they Thank finally you. did a documentary that uh, is true for a true crime documentary. Although I've been yeah, fairly lucky yeah. on the, the, the uh, true crime documentaries that I've been part of. Being as they base them on my book, I could kind of, you know. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and, and you, you get say, to be. Oh, no, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> this is what happened. You get to be one of the one of the talking heads on a lot of them, Yeah, too. I get to be a talking yeah. head. Uh, though the the other extreme is, uh, for example, on uh, the movie The Saint with Val Kilmer, I was a consultant, uh-huh. uh, unpaid consultant. They, they bought me lunch a lot. But they, they would send me every copy of the screenplay and say, Mr. Bear, what, what about this? What about that? And I'd write big, long responses saying, okay, you can change this to this, this to this, this to this. Totally ignored everything. Not only did they ignore me, they ignored the, the input of Leslie Charteris, who created the saint. They ignored everything he said also. Now, on Maverick, I was also a consultant on Maverick. Oh, wow. And, and uh, again, I got every copy of the screenplay. And I, got, I was on set, actually, with uh, with Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, and James Garner. I had a great time with them. It was great fun. Cool. And uh, I even rewrote some scenes for them, for which I was uncredited. Oh. <laughs> oh. It didn't work. You go, what are we going to do here? We got this mistake, but let me fix it. And I'd write it, they fixed it, they shot it. Do any screen credit? No. <laughs> what a lovely family resemblance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, good, that movie. Yeah, but it was fun. I had great fun on Maverick. That was the love. Because what was Mel Gibson like? I said, Mel Gibson was really nice. You know, we were having coffee one day in his trailer, and he says, you know, he says, I can't drink. And I said, you can't. He says, if I drink alcohol, I become a total ass. I say the stupidest things, wind up getting in trouble, so I just can't drink. So, of course, then he goes to his best friend's bar mitzvah, son's bar mitzvah, gets drunk, and, and that's when he can stop the cops. He's been trying to live that down ever since. Uh, one of my favorite scenes yeah. in the movie is right in the beginning where mm-hmm. there's a robbery going on. Right. And Mel Gibson pulls down the mask. And it's Danny Glover. And it's Danny Glover. He goes, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you'll appreciate this one. There was uh, when they did one of the stories about uh, the start with a few gate thing. They had my dad as a consultant. And they were going to do the execution scene of Charlie, and they had everything set up, you know, the, the electric chair and the, you know, uh, clothing and all that stuff set up and ready to go. And my dad goes, oh, you're missing one thing. And they go, what's that? Because the light bulb. They will go, what? Light bulb, you're supposed to put it in the mouth, so how else would you know that it's working? It's <laughs> not working. And they, the customer goes, oh, or the customer goes, oh, oh, and starts running to get it. And the producer grabs him and is like, no, he's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on Maverick, one of the the final scenes where uh, James Gardner and Mel Gibson were in these uh, side-by-side in bathtubs. Yeah, that was the family resemblance. Yeah, the family resemblance. Yeah. Uh, And they're they're talking back and forth. 
and uh, 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 Mel or Garter, one of the two, misses a paragraph of dialogue and gives the cue for for the response. And I am on uh-huh. a pair of headphones on the way other side of the soundstage. And I'm listening to the dialogue. Everyone else is busy doing their job, right? Yeah. But I'm paying attention uh-huh. to the dialogue. I have a very good audiographic memory as opposed to photographic. I hear it and I got it. And I totally forgot the line about the loot in the boot. No one else catches this. Right. The 140 uh-huh. people working on this movie, no one notices. <laughs> and they're uh-huh. trying to tear down the set, stop the whole thing. So I, I have to crawl through a bunch of stuff and crawl up to where Richard Donner is. I always called him Mr. Donner, sir. He went, uh, Mr. Donner, sir. He goes, what is it, bro? I go, Mel forgot the line about the loot and the boot. He goes, oh! <laughs> <laughs> said, stop, everybody stop, everybody yeah, stop. Yeah, the, the whole bit is, is that the money, half the money was in each boot. Yeah. And she only took one boot. Yeah. And he forgot, oh. to, he forgot to say the line. But gave the cue to Garner, right? Oh. About missing that line. And so yeah. afterwards, I said to Don, I said, Mr. Donner, I said, I hope you, you know, I wasn't grandstanding. You know, I know I just whispered it to him. I didn't say, hey, you all forgot, you know. <laughs> just between the two of us. So Mr. Donner, he said, yeah. And he says, oh, no. He says, Pearl, thank you. He says, you didn't grandstand about it. You just whispered it to me. And if you hadn't done that, it would have cost us a fortune because we wouldn't have caught it till we were putting the movie together. And, and we'd, we'd have, have to call everybody sure. back. To do that yeah. one shot again, so right. Oh man. So it's, yeah, it's yeah that, that you have to rebuild the set and everything. Oh yeah. So uh, he, he was perfectly okay with me having crawled up there and whispered it to him. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on short notice to talk to us. It's yeah, really it was great. It. Always cool. fun having you on the show. I love your books. Thank I'll write you, some man. more. And what's the name of this book that we're talking about? Pro bono. Pro bono. Just like Sunny Bono, except pro bono. The full title is uh, Pro Bono, The 18-Year Defense of Caroline Fugate. That's it. Buy it, read it, believe it. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome.